Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. I want to welcome you and welcome everyone watching our YouTube channel as well. Uh, and uh, in this new year, we're starting with a brand new series uh, today, which is a verse-by-verse study through the entire Gospel of Mark, looking at the book of Mark through a, a Messianic Jewish perspective, focusing on the life and times of Yeshua, the Messiah. Mark was the first gospel written. It's the shortest of the four gospels. Uh, so we're going to start right in today with Mark 1, 1 through 8. So Mark 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the good news about Yeshua, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who prepare, the, who prepare your way. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Immerser appeared in the wilderness, preaching an immersion of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, went out to him, confessing their sins. They were immersed by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I immerse you with water, but he'll immerse you with the Ruach HaKodesh, with the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. Uh, As I said, the Gospel of Mark is the first written account we have of, of the life of Yeshua. For about 30 years after his death and resurrection of Yeshua, we had Paul's letters uh, during those first 30 years, but no written Gospels. Instead, the Gospels were repeated and spread orally uh, by the original apostles and other disciples. And there was no need, uh, at first, of a written account, because it would have been very hard to distort any of the accounts about Yeshua while the apostles themselves and other eyewitnesses, like his mother Miriam, Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, and others, were still alive. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, written about 20 years after the death of Yeshua, Paul writes this about the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 5. He, Yeshua, appeared to Cephas, to to Peter, uh, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 other brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still alive. Meaning, if you don't believe me, go check it out. Go talk to them. They're, They're still living. So within the first 30 years or so, uh, after, the, after the life of Messiah, it would have been very difficult for someone to make up something about Yeshua. Because so many people were still around who personally knew him. So for example, you couldn't go around saying, oh yeah, Yeshua, he used to fly through the air between preaching engagements. <laughs> because there were too many people around who would say, no, I was there, that never happened. But about one generation after the death and resurrection of Yeshua, when the apostles were starting to die off and other eyewitnesses were starting to die off, uh, there arose the potential danger that people could decide, they could decide for themselves who they wanted Yeshua to be. They could make up their own customized Yeshua. 
they could lose touch with the real Yeshua. And therefore, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they began to pull together the accounts of the apostles and the eyewitness accounts and write down the life of Yeshua. So, for example, Luke opens his gospel with this, Luke 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too have decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. So what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did is they took the eyewitness accounts and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they wrote the four Gospels so that we could have the real Yeshua. Not some Yeshua that you make up. Not the Yeshua of your own imagination. But the real Yeshua. And to document for all time what he really said and what he really did. And we need this today desperately. Because lots of people today are interested in Yeshua. But they often want to impose their own take on who he was and what he said and what he did, and why he came, and what he accomplished. Uh, and they often are very unaware, uh, and they miss uh, his Jewish background, uh, and the, his, context, his Jewish context and roots. And so they can misunderstand many times what he's saying, uh, and the allusions and the references he's making that his first century Israeli audience would have immediately understood. And so for a variety of reasons, people want to understand Yeshua Today, only on their own terms. But here's the irony. A Yeshua that you shape, a Yeshua that you make up, uh, the makeup that fits your own desires, a Yeshua of your own, he cannot change you. He can't transform you. Because a Yeshua uh, that you make up, he can't challenge you. Uh, he can't contradict you. He can't tell you you're wrong or that you're in sin. Because ultimately, he's just you. A projection and a product of your imagination. Because if he's not the Yeshua of the Bible, he's just the Yeshua that you've made up. So the irony is, the Yeshua that you create, that does not have his own reality, uh, can't change or renew or regenerate or transform you. If you want a Yeshua who can really help you, if you want Yeshua who can really spiritually transform you, you must get the real Yeshua. And that's what we have in the Gospels. And of, and of the four Gospels, Mark focuses the most on the actions and words of Yeshua. Uh, Matthew starts out with this long genealogy, a lot of prologue about Yeshua's roots uh, and his family. Luke starts with this very long prologue about Zechariah and Elizabeth and Miriam. John starts with, with the creation of the world. <laughs> but Mark starts right in on Yeshua. Boom. You don't, have, you don't have a whole lot of teaching about Yeshua or a lot of commentary about Yeshua. Mark just wants to give you Yeshua. His character, his actions, his miracles. And because we live today in the midst of a culture uh, that desperately needs the real Yeshua. And because that's who this book, book is written to show us, to give us, a Yeshua that can actually change our lives. 
Mark is a great and an often neglected gospel for us to study in depth, verse by verse, in this new year of 2021. And right away in the very beginning of his gospel, Mark tells us who Yeshua is. Look at Mark 1.1. The beginning of the good news about Yeshua, the Messiah, the Son of God. So right away, right out of the gate, Mark tells us two key things. That Yeshua is the Messiah and that he's the Son of God. On the overhead, and in the Jewish biblical understanding, Jewish understanding, the term Messiah means the anointed king. According to Mark, the real Yeshua is the king. And then Mark immediately adds, and the Son of God. He's divine. Now, in the scripture, sometimes this phrase, son of sons of God, in context, could refer to simply to people who have great godliness, a great godly character, and sometimes can refer to angels or other heavenly beings. So how do we know that this reference is not saying the Yeshua is just some great human king or, or angelic being? Well, in these first, in these first eight verses, Mark gets right down to who this king is on the overhead. And we're told three things in this passage that we're going to look at today. Number one, the king has come, who he is. Number two, the king's school, how you can meet him in the wilderness. And number three, the king's cross, where he's going. So you have who he is, how you can meet him, and where he's going. So number one, the king has, who he is, the king has come. Let me show you who Mark says Yeshua is. Look at Mark 1, verses 2 to 3. As it's written in Yeshiahu Hanavi and Isaiah the prophet, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who prepare your way. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now properly understood, this verse is a bombshell. An absolute bombshell in all of history and literature and religion. In verse 3, Mark's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 40. And in this prophecy, if you go back and look, Isaiah says that someday the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem. So go back up and let's look at a few excerpts from Isaiah chapter 40. It's very, very clear. The Lord says this, Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says your God. So God is speaking. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received double from the Lord's hands for all her sins. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He's coming. Make a highway for him. You who bring good news to Zion, go over the high mountain. You who bring the gospel, good news to Jerusalem. Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord himself comes with power. And he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him. And his recompense accompanies him. Isaiah says the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem and show the nations his glory. And now Mark has the audacity to quote this passage and apply it to Yeshua. And Isaiah also says a messenger will call out and prepare the way for him. 
which Mark then immediately applies to Yohanan Hamadbil, John the Immerser, John the Baptist, uh, who, who indeed prepared the way for Yeshua. And in Isaiah 40, when he refers to the coming of the Lord, Isaiah uses the word yud heh vav the four-letter, ineffable, personal, sacred, covenant name of God. The same name by which God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. This is the personal covenant name of God. Uh, the name that our Jewish people consider so holy, they don't even pronounce it. Uh, except it was pronounced once a year by the high priest uh, on Yom Kippur when he went into the temple. And Mark here is saying that yud heh vav the Lord himself, the Holy One of Israel, the creator of the universe, the judge of all mankind, has now come to earth in the form of Yeshua, the Messiah. Do you know what a bombshell this is? For example, this is the end of philosophy. All of philosophy has been a battle over which is more important, uh, the ideal or the real, uh, the particular or the universal. But in Yeshua, the ideal has become real. Uh, the, the, the metaphysical has become physical. Uh, the immortal has become mortal. The unapproachable is now uh, something that you can hug, someone that you can hug. The invulnerable has now become vulnerable. And the impossible has become possible. Unlike Hinduism and Buddhism, which says that God is this divine spark in all of us, and therefore the incarnation of the divine into the human is happening all the time, and unlike Islam uh, and, and rabbinic Judaism, which says that God is so utterly transcendent that the incarnation of the divine into the human is impossible, contrary to all of them, Yeshua faith, Messianic Judaism, says that God is so transcendent that the incarnation certainly is not constant, but that God is so loving and so intent on our salvation that he did break through the concrete wall between the ideal and the real and was incarnated once uniquely in Yeshua, the Messiah, and the overhead. And therefore, God becoming human in Yeshua, the Messiah, is the universe-sundering, history-altering, worldview-shattering, life-transforming event that sets Messianic Judaism, Yeshua faith, off from every other religion and every other philosophy and every other worldview on the face of the earth. Okay, what do you say? Well, David, what if you say to me, I don't believe that. Or, what about this? You do, you do believe it, but you're trying to witness to a friend of yours or a family member or a business associate or a classmate or a neighbor who doesn't believe it. What if you're sharing your faith with a secular person who says, look, primitive people, they were different. They could believe in, in, in the divine uh, becoming human. Uh, no, I can, I can understand today about Yeshua being a great teacher, maybe even having a sort of divine consciousness. But I'm a rational, modern, sophisticated, educated person. Uh, and there's just way too many, way too many uh, intellectual and cultural barriers for me to believe in the incarnation, in the divine becoming human. Okay, I would answer this person like this. Here's what the book of Mark is saying to you. Please keep in mind all the original worshipers of Yeshua, all the original believers of Yeshua were Jews, including Mark himself. 
And they had far more cultural and intellectual and, and worldview and religious barriers to believing that God could become a human being than you do. Far more. Or if your friend is an Orthodox Jew, they had the same barriers. Devout first century Jews wouldn't even speak or write the name of the Lord. The same with, with devout Jews today. That's how holy and transcendent and other the Lord is. Totally separate from us. So the idea that God could take on flesh and blood and become a human being was absolutely, antithetically, utterly opposed to everything that ever been taught or believed about reality and the universe and the nature of God. It went against all their cultural, their culture and their intellect and their spiritual understanding. So their barriers to belief in the deity of Yeshua were at least as great, in many cases far greater than yours, my modern secular friend. And yet, they overcame all these barriers and embraced and worshipped Yeshua as Lord. Because something so powerful happened that it shattered all those barriers. And the book of Mark is going to show us on every page what that was. And as we're going to see over these next several months, uh, it was what Yeshua said, how he acted, uh, what he did, the claims he made, the miracles he performed, and of course, most of all, his resurrection, which vindicated all of his claims. The book of Mark is going to show us that the original Jewish Messianic believers had far more problems with this idea of God becoming a man, becoming flesh and blood, than most modern people do. But something broke through all of that. It was Yeshua's words and his deeds, his life and his death and his resurrection. And Mark says, Mark says, I'm going to show all this to you. So read on in my gospel. And that's Mark's introduction to this book. And if you receive the truth revealed in this gospel, that God became human in Yeshua the Messiah, if you actually receive this, it will change your life. Now, I don't mean that it will change your life if you believe it in some nominal way or some merely intellectual way or because that's how my parents raised me. No. On the overhead. But if you really take this truth, God and Yeshua, into the center of your being and let it catch fire in your heart and your soul, it will transform you. So I want to give you today three ways the central truth of the gospel, that God became human, if you really let it come in to the center of your life, how it will change you. So on the overhead, number one, it'll change what I'm going to call the drive shaft of your heart. What do I mean by this? We all have a basic motivational drive. Your heart, every heart, has some basic motivational drive that gets you up in the morning. Uh, gets you through the day, uh, moves you to do what you do. And for most of us, this motivational drive, drive, believe it or not, for most of us, this is fear. Fear of missing out. Fear of not, not proving myself. Fear of not living up. Now, all the religions of the world just aggravate that fear. Because all the religions of the world, for all of them, God is out there and up there. Uh, he's out there and he's up there, and we have to somehow reach him. And of course, every religion tells us, tries to tell us how to do that. If you want to reach the divine, Buddhism says there's an eightfold path. 
Islam says there's five pillars. Rabbinic Judaism says there's ten commandments. Confucianism says there's filial piety and all that that entails. That's how you can reach the divine. But this just increases the fear. Because all your life you're striving in uncertainty. Uh, uh, and why are you trying to reach the divine? Because you don't want to lose the, the, the divine. You don't want to miss the divine. You don't want to fall short of the divine or incur the wrath of the divine. And so in religion, it's fear that drives you to pursue God. To try to somehow reach God. The overhead. But the incarnation, God becoming flesh, means that God has come to you. Unlike all the other religions, in Messiah Yeshua, God has come to you. And he's given himself to you. And it's possible, therefore, to now have a heart that knows that you know God. Because of Yeshua's incarnation and his sinless life and his crucifixion and resurrection, it's now possible to know in an intimate way that the God of the universe, the creator God, and he said possible to know him and to have a personal relationship with him. And therefore, now you can be regenerated into newness of life. And now live a life of gratitude and grateful joy and love for the Lord. You can now have a heart that's motivated by love and not by fear. If you are abiding in Yeshua, you no longer need to have a fear that you're going to miss God or be rejected by God. But rather you can now live out of love and joyful gratitude that you have him. And he promises to be with you always, even to the end of the age. And by his own initiative, he has come to you because he knows you could never reach him on your own. So number one on the overhead, the doctrine of the incarnation can change the drive shaft of your life from fear to grateful joy. Producing in you a whole new way of doing everything, a whole new reason for everything. Number two on the overhead, the doctrine of the incarnation is a tremendous resource also for dealing with suffering. You know, if you're really hurting and you sit down with someone, pour your heart out to them, uh, and, and their response is that they just give you a lot of facts and a lot of do this and do this and do this, that typically is not much help. But if you pour out your heart to someone with all your troubles and your tribulations, and the other person says to you, guess what? I went through that very same thing. And then they not only show you what they've been through, that they've been through what you've been through, but, but even far worse and far more intently, and they tell you their story, and they say, I'll be with you as you go through this. That's what you need. Now, there's no religion that says that God has been through anything more intently than you have, except Messianic Judaism, Yeshua faith. No other religion even dares to say that their God suffered, that their God bled. But their God died and was resurrected. Only Messianic Judaism, biblical Christianity, has a God who was wounded. A God who was crucified. A God who, as your faithful high priest, understands your pain and suffering. Because he experienced it himself. There's this poem that I love by a guy named Edward Shillitoe. On the overhead, we're going to put this up. It says, the other gods didst ride, but thou didst stumble. To thy throne. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. 
and know God has wounds, but thou alone. No other religion even claims their God has wounds. So on the overhead, number one, the incarnation can change the drive shaft of your heart. Number two, it gives you incredible resources for how to handle suffering. And number three, it's a tremendous motivation for peace and biblical justice. The incarnation means that in Yeshua, God took on a human body, a material body. And in the resurrection, he was not just redeemed spiritually, he was also redeemed physically. The incarnation and the resurrection mean that God invented both soul and body. And he's going to redeem both soul and body. And the purpose of salvation isn't escaping this material world, but the redemption, the renewal, the healing of the material world. The Lord's going to bring a new heavens and a new earth. And therefore, not only salvation of our souls and forgiveness of our sins, but also things like fighting disease and poverty and crime and corruption and abortion. These are also on the agenda of the salvation of God. When Mark starts off his gospel with this prophecy of Isaiah, he's planting the roots of the gospel of Yeshua into the soil of the ancient hope of Israel for a messianic king to come someday who would take on every mountain and raise up every valley, and heal the world of all its disease and sin and brokenness. And Mark is saying here in this gospel, this king has come. So on the overhead, number one, the king has come. Number two, the second thing we learn here is you can meet this king in the wilderness. Now the whole theme of Mark chapter one is if you're going to find this king, you've got to go out into the wilderness. John the Baptist preaches in the wilderness. The people go out and get immersed in the water in the wilderness. Yeshua is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. The problem is to us here today, living in North America, when we think of the word wilderness, what the image that often comes to mind is some kind of huge forest. You know, a forest here, a forest here in North America, uh, is very different than what the word here means uh, in the Bible. Because you know, the North American wilderness is this typically this great expanse of forest. It's a place teeming with life. So, so it's relatively easy actually to, to live in a forest. You can hunt, you can fish, you can, you can grow things. But this does not get across the biblical meaning of this word. Said in the ancient Near East, the wilderness is defined in the scriptures. The Greek word used here, erasmos, corresponding to the Hebrew word midbar, uh, it's better translated as desert. The wilderness used here in Mark chapter 1 is a place that cannot sustain life. The wilderness is a desert here. It's a place of thorns. Nothing grows. It's a place of thirst. All the wells are dry. It's a place of hunger. Nothing edible grows there. It's a place of terrible loneliness because it cannot support a community. It can't support life. Now, what's important about John the Immerser, or the Immerser preaching out in the wilderness, and the people needing to go out in the wilderness to get baptized, to get immersed, is because, interestingly, this is actually one of the major themes of the Bible. One of the themes of the Bible is that, in general, you meet God in the wilderness. In the history of Israel, they met God in the wilderness. Where did Moses meet God? At the burning bush. In the wilderness. Where did Yaakov, Jacob, wrestle with God? 
face to face. As if you were here last week for the Bible study, Robert Lent taught uh, from Jacob wrestling with God last week, Genesis 32, in the wilderness. Where did Israel meet God? In Egypt? No. At Sinai, in the wilderness. That's where Israel became a nation in covenant with the Lord. It's where they walked it out for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now, why is the wilderness generally the place where you meet God? Because the wilderness is the place where you can't stay alive without the intervention of God. All the wells go dry. So you have to have the water of God, which came from a rock. All the bread grows moldy. So you must have the manna of God. And out of the wilderness, Israel learned what we all have to learn. The Lord is not an add-on. He's not some vitamin supplement. Apart, apart from the saving intervention of God, you have no hope without him. And that ultimately all the wells run dry, except the water of God. And all the bread grows moldy, except the manna of God. And you say, okay, David, but what does that, that have got to do with me? Everything. Because the book of Hebrews says we still meet God today in the wilderness. On the overhead. Just as in the literal desert, you find out that all the wells but God's go, grow, go dry. And all the bread but God's grow moldy. In the same way, in our lives, we generally only meet God when we go through a wilderness experience. A wilderness experience is when something you've looked to as your real hope, the hope of your life, your, your real well of water, your, your real bread. Of course, you may say you believe in God, you may say you believe in Yeshua, but when the real thing you really put your hope in, the real thing that keeps you alive, that's your real spiritual life, the thing that really makes you feel uh, like, like a worthwhile person, your real Savior, your real bread, your, your real drink, your real Lord, when it runs out, that's a wilderness experience. We find it's inadequate. C.S. Lewis, as of course only C.S. Lewis can do, he explains what a wilderness experience is in this great quote uh, in, in which uh, how we meet God. And on the overhead, he says this. He says, on the overhead, uh, most people... Most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings that arise within us when we first fall in love, or first think of some far-off foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, our longings that no marriage, no travel, no learning ever really satisfies. Now, he says, I'm not talking about unsuccessful marriages or trips or so on. I'm talking about the very best possible ones. There's always something that we grasp at. And that first moment of longing that always fades away in reality. The spouse may have been a great spouse. The scenery may have been excellent. It turned out to be a great job. But but what we're really looking for has evaded us, has eluded us. Now, here's what it means to really find and to meet the king. Not that you decide to get religious, but that something happens in your life that makes you look at the very foundation of your life 
And you realize, maybe for the first time, I'm going to die without God. And you had this epiphany, this realization where you say to yourself, it's not my job. It's not the money. It's not my house. It's not my family. It's not my looks. It's not my friends. It's not my achievements. It's none of these things. It's not even a great husband or a great wife. It's not great kids. None of these things are ever going to make me permanently and immutably and eternally happy. Every well will run dry, except for the water of God. Every bread will grow moldy, except for the manna of God. And when you realize that, and when you realize without the direct intervention of God in my life, I'm dead. When and only when you experience that. And it means, of course, that you're in the wilderness. When you experience that, and only when you experience that, you meet the king. And John the Baptist, in his ministry in the wilderness, makes this perfectly clear. Notice the text tells us that John immersed people in the wilderness. Now when you say, oh yeah, but that's no big deal. But oh yes, it was. It was an enormous big deal. Before Yohanan Hamabiel, before John the Baptist, there had always been in Judaism... Ritual washings uh, and um, ablutions and effusions uh, and and immersions. So, for example, there there was the laver and the tabernacle and the temple where you washed your hands and your feet before you went in uh, to worship the Lord. There were mikvah baths uh, for immersion to cleanse one from ritual impurity, such such as if you had a flow of blood or a woman's monthly cycle, or you touched a dead body, an unclean animal. The high priest had to reverse himself numerous times on Yom Kippur before entering the holy place or the holy of holies. There were all these symbolic ways of saying, I need to be cleansed of sin. Or I need to be cleansed of ritual impurity. I have a certain uncleanliness in my life. So this was a ritual for confession and purification of sins or purification from ritual uncleanliness. And of course, in addition, any Gentile who wanted to actually go to the temple to worship, they had to also immerse themselves because as Gentiles, they're automatically considered as ritually unclean. And so the idea that you washed, immersions and ablutions and effusions, to purify yourself so you could go into God's presence, that was standard practice in Judaism for thousands of years. But in Jewish practice, you always did it to yourself. Always. You did self-immersion. That's that's the Jewish way. That was how it was done. But now, for the first time ever in history, John the Baptist says, no. I must immerse you. Notice the text says, look at Mark 1, verse 5. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This was everybody. Gentiles, Jews, priests, Pharisees, Everybody. It didn't matter what your background was. It doesn't matter if you're a Torah scholar or a prostitute. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, male or female, slave or free. You must receive your fitness for the kingdom from the hand of another. John says, I must immerse you. And later, Yeshua himself must immerse you with the Holy Spirit. And the point is, you cannot save yourself. And do you know what this means? You know, there's always here coming to EC, uh, some various people and visitors who are searching. And here's why you're searching. 
Your well has run dry. Let's say, for example, you've got a great job. And you're doing really well and you're making good money. Uh, and then COVID hits. And you've got some financial reversals. Serious financial reversals. And your future is very cloudy. You're in real financial trouble. And $600 from the federal government is not going to help very much. <laughs> and, you, and you thought, yeah, money's just a nice thing. But now you've come to see that in your life, it's the main thing. And you're now experiencing a kind of emotional collapse. You can't even relate to people. You're having trouble making commitments to others. You're having trouble liking yourself. You're having some really dark thoughts. You were perhaps never a religious kind of person. We're starting to realize that, that yes, I was. Because this was my Savior. It was the knowledge that I was savvy and smart and making good money and doing well. But now all that has gone away, and I suddenly realize I'm experiencing, experiencing a major identity meltdown. Because this was my well. This was my water of life. This was my bread of life. And so now you realize I'm empty, and I need something. And so let's say you, you go on the internet and you discover EC at time and you start attending our Shabbat services here. You even start to read your, your Bible and you say, yeah, this is what I need. I need God. And often the first thing you do is you say, I'm going to start to be really good. I'm going to be moral. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to be nasty to people anymore. I'm going to clean up my life. And John the Baptist says, you're still Trying to save yourself. You're still trying to immerse yourself. You're getting religious and spiritual. But you're trying to baptize yourself. You're still immersing yourself. You're still in this self-salvation mode. You have not really changed your foundation. Let me tell you what happens when you're about to meet the king. Uh, Nathan Coles was this Connecticut farmer who kept a diary back in the 1740s. He became a born-again believer listening to the famous uh, preacher, George Whitfield, of the Great Awakening, in this open-air sermon in a farm field in Connecticut in 1740. And on the overhead, this is what he, he wrote in his diary. My hearing him preach gave me a heart, gave me a heart wound. And by God's grace, my old foundation was broken up. And I saw that my righteousness could not save me. Nathan Coles was in the wilderness. He saw his foundation. He met his king on the overhead. Now that's number one, who the king is. King Messiah, Yeshua. The king has come. Number two, where you meet him. Amid Bar, in the wilderness. The school of the king is the wilderness. And now finally, number three, where is this king going? To the cross. He's going to the cross. Now, modern, secular, Western people, we don't like hearing about Yeshua being a king. Because they like him, yeah, as a, my friend, maybe, or teacher, or, or loving servant. But king, king sounds so patriarchal, uh, and domineering, and authoritative, uh, and oppressive. And indeed, the text here says, look at Mark 1, verse 3, Prepare ye the way for the king, make straight paths for him. And the word way here is the word for road or highway. Now, Jews, in the first century, hearing this prophecy, immediately knew what, what, what Isaiah was talking about. Because when a king came into the, to your, 
into your town, you would actually build a highway to honor the king. And back in those days, they didn't have modern engineering uh, equipment. What this meant was you had to actually go out and build the road. And if there was a rock formation in the way, you just had to go around the rocks. If you got got to a canyon, you had to zigzag up and down, went into the canyon, zigzag back up the other end. But if you wanted to make a straight road for the king, you were to take down the rock formations. You were to bridge the canyon or even fill them up. And this took thousands of slaves. So when the king came, it was slavery. And so a lot of people would think, well, if Yeshua is a king, that just means more oppression. I'm going to have to do what he says. I don't like that. Sounds like slavery to me. Sounds like oppression. But no. Because Mark deliberately uses this word, uh, the Greek word hodos, which means road. Prepare the road for the Lord. On the overhead. Every other place where this word road is used in the book of Mark, it always means the road to the cross. Every other place the word road is used in the gospel of Mark, it's Yeshua's road to the cross. And on the overhead, what this means is that this king didn't come to go onto a throne. This king comes to go onto a cross. The king's cross. What does this mean to you when you hear that phrase, King's Cross? Well, if you're British, King's Cross means a railway, st- a railroad station in London. If you're Australian, it's actually a railway station in Sydney. If you're here, if you're American, you know it's where a famous young protagonist in a famous novel picks up a train to Hogwarts at platform nine and three quarters. Well, but I'd like you to consider this paradoxical term, King's Cross at the heart of what the gospel of Mark is all about. King's cross. Think about that. Do you realize what a paradox that phrase is? Kings go to thrones, not crosses. In fact, the cross is the opposite of a throne. On the overhead, a throne is a place of power. A cross is the ultimate place of powerlessness and helplessness. A person dying on the cross wasn't even allowed to die in private. It was a long, agonizing death where you were stripped naked for everybody to see. It was the epitome of helplessness and weakness and shame. It was the opposite of a throne on the overhead. And Mark is saying here that the kingliness and greatness of Yeshua is that rather than go to a throne, when he got here, he went to a cross for you and for me. He went into the ultimate wilderness A howling wilderness. What was in that wilderness? Thorns crowned on his head. Thirst. Forsakenness. Aloneness. Yeshua went into the ultimate wilderness and lost God. So that when you and I go into our little wildernesses, we can find God. Yeshua took the punishment that we deserve so that we can have, by his grace, a personal relationship with the Lord himself. And what that means is that Yeshua's kingship is not oppressive. Because he's not just a king. He's also a servant. Yeshua's kingship is not oppressive because it brings salvation by grace. And therefore it's not enslavement, but liberation. It's the ultimate freedom. It's what changes the drive shaft of your heart. Now, if Yeshua is not just a great man, but is God himself in the flesh, 
And if this God, if this God became not a king who goes to a throne, but to a cross for you, then finally, how should you respond to him? Note that the only rational responses to these claims are extreme on the overhead. Note that people, all the people who actually met Yeshua always reacted to him in an extreme way. If you actually uh, heard the real Yeshua, if you actually met the real Yeshua, if you actually saw what he was saying, you either, number one, hated him and tried to kill him, or number two, you were scared to death of him, tried to get as far away as quick as possible, or number three, you knelt down and laid the sword of your life at his feet and said, command me. You gave your life to him utterly in adoration. He's, these are the only three rational responses. And they're all extreme. The one thing that no one ever, oh, whoever saw the real Yeshua ever did was to say, nice sermon preacher. Or, very inspiring. Or, interesting point. Yeshua is not merely inspiring. The only rational responses to the claims that Mark is making about Yeshua are extreme responses. So what is your response today? If you say, well, I don't want to be an extremist, please note that embracing Yeshua and becoming intensely like him will not make you an extremist in the way you fear. Because you'll be intensely gentle and intensely humble. And intensely loving. You won't look like an extremist to God. But you would be an extremist in the sense that the only rational response, if you really take his claims seriously, is to either hate him or be scared to death of him or to fall at his feet and give him your life. There is no other rational response. So what is your response to Yeshua? Do you know? Do you intimately know and have a personal relationship with the real Yeshua? Let's stand and pray. I thought we're going to come up, please. Hallelujah. Father, we acknowledge today the Yeshua is the Messiah, the anointed king, and the son of God, the incarnate God in the flesh. As the famous song goes, we sing it this season, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity. Yeshua, we confess you are truly Emmanuel, God with us. Lord Yeshua, we pray that you will help this key truth catch fire in my soul and set my heart ablaze today with more and more love for you. May it change the drive shaft of my heart. May it reset all my motivations and the meditations of my mind and the intentions of my heart. Lord, help me to know with absolute certainty, Lord, that I know you intimately. That I, and that I have an abiding, never-ending, personal relationship with you, Yeshua. Help me, Lord, have a heart that's motivated by love and not by fear. And to know that you yourself suffered and bled and died. So that you now can understand and empathize with all my struggles and temptations and trials and tribulations. Because you... I'm my great high priest, my Kohen Hagadol. And indeed, that's where we meet you, Lord, in our struggles. Bamidbar, in the wilderness, where all our wells run dry. 
And all our bread grows moldy. So therefore, we need your provision and your presence. You, Yeshua, are our life. You were the king who went to the cross for us. King's cross. The ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate act of love. And now, we give our life to you. We lay our sword, the sword of our life at your feet. And we say, command me. And we pray this all in your name, Bashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.